Out of a cerulean sea, hills rise steeply, brown with green scrub. Two points of land reach south and north, almost touching between them, an azure entry to a long, deep bay bounded by moorhills. This is the entrance to Severnaya, or North Bay, also called Sevastopol Bay, on the Black Sea coast of the Crimean Peninsula. The gateway to the port of the hero city of Sevastopol, home in 1941 of the Black Sea Fleet of the Red Navy. Beyond Barbarossa, Episode 15, The Battle for Sevastopol, Part 1. Today, we'll look into just why the Soviet Union's dictator, Joseph Stalin, conferred the title Hero City on Sevastopol. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry. I'm podcasting to you today from the unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people, also known as Ottawa. This is Episode 15, The Siege of Sevastopol, Part 1. Last episode described the German invasion of the Crimean Peninsula up to the town of Jankoy, where the main roads from the north converge. This put the invading Germans on the way to the Crimean capital of Simferopol, not to mention the whole of the peninsula from west to east. Today, we'll continue south to the ultimate prize, Sevastopol and the home of the Red Navy Black Sea Fleet. Last episode looked at the beginning of the invasion of Crimea. Following Red Air Force strikes launched from bases in Crimea against Romania in July 1941, German Fuhrer Adolf Hitler called the peninsula an unsinkable aircraft carrier. He ordered its conquest. This was a change from the original plan of Operation Barbarossa, one of many changes. The German 11th Army under General Erich von Manstein was given the task of invading and conquering Crimea, among other things. Manstein decided to concentrate on Crimea, and his operation attacked by land. This took the Soviets by surprise. They expected a naval assault. After all, it seems foolhardy to attempt to invade Crimea over land, given that narrow connection between Crimea and the mainland. Narrow connections, narrow passes always favor defenders. However, uh, the 11th Army moved through the Isthmus of Perikop. It comprised nine infantry divisions in two corps, plus the 8th Air Corps of the Luftwaffe, as well as one Romanian Corps, three divisions of the Romanian Mountain Corps, and the Italian Regia Marina. Defending the peninsula was the Soviet 51st Army under Colonel General Fyodor Kuznetsov. 
It comprised seven rifle and cavalry divisions, and they had constructed multiple defensive lines across the Isthmus. Even so, within two days, September 11th and 12th, 1941, the Germans penetrated the defenses at the narrowest point of the Isthmus, near the city of Petokop. They also crossed over water at two other points a little bit further east of that. This allowed them to, by the end of September 1941, uh, accomplish another double encirclement of two Soviet divisions. But due to the rough terrain and the typically stubborn Red Army defense, the Germans experienced very high losses. For example, over a single six-day period in September, 2,641 casualties. That's more than 400 a day. Now, one of the goals of this podcast is to not only describe the uh, action on the Eastern Front, but also put it in context, what else is going on in the war at the same time. So, October 1941. North of Crimea, German Army Group Center has begun Operation Typhoon, its so-called final push toward Moscow. On October 10th, the German armies encircled 660,000 Soviet troops near Vyazma, and soon another double encirclement near Bryansk. You can get uh, full details on this in episodes 8 and 9, which describe Operation Typhoon. By October 19th, the Soviet government declared Moscow to be in an official state of siege and began evacuating key government departments eastward. However, Stalin and the Stavka, the high command, remained in Moscow. On October 22nd, the Odessa massacre began. Here, as many as 34,000 Jewish people were shot and killed or burned alive. Soon after, just a few days later, the Vilna Ghetto Action in Vil- city now known as Vilnius in Lithuania saw more than 8,000 Jewish people murdered over two days. Elsewhere in the war, the RAF was conducting heavy night bombings of Berlin, the Ruhr Valley, and Cologne, but at heavy losses. On October 17th, Near Iceland, a German U-boat torpedoed the USS Kearney, killing 11 sailors, the first American military casualties of the war. On October 20th, French resistance fighters assassinated Lieutenant Colonel Karl Hoth, the German commander in occupied Nantes, France. In North Africa, specifically Egypt, New Zealand troops captured Fort Capuzzo. And... In the East, negotiations between the United States and Japan continued to stall and break down. So that's the situation in October 1941. Now let's focus on our main subject, Sevastopol, also known as Sevastopol. Both pronunciations apparently are acceptable. Quote, The city of Sevastopol began as a small garrison town on the south coast of Akhtiar Bay. Over the years, the town spread its boundaries, but in essence continued to lie between two bays, Quarantine and Yuznaya, or South Bay. The latter is one of a number of large and small bays and inlets located along the larger body of water originally called Akhtiar, and later Great Harbor, Sevastopol Bay, 
or Severnaya or North Bay. It was about 7 kilometers long, 1.2 kilometers wide, and 10 fathoms deep. The bay's access to the Black Sea was protected by two spits of land, Cape Alexander on the south and Cape Constantine on the north. Sevastopol Bay is bordered by hills to the north and south. A series of strategic ravines plunge down from the tops of the plateaus into the bay. The mountain ranges and plateaus are separated by narrow river valleys. The Alma, Kacha, and Belbek rivers, north of Sevastopol, flow from the mountains into the Black Sea and Sevastopol Bay. These river valleys form natural moats. It was not so much the rivers themselves that blocked the approaches to Sevastopol. They were narrow and often dry in the summer months. Rather, it was the hills through which the valleys passed. In earlier times, these three valleys were known for fruit that grew there abundantly, mostly pears and apples. Empress Catherine II, on her way to Sevastopol, crossed over the dry beds of the Kaja and Belbek rivers from the direction of the city of Bakchisare. Through the vineyards and rich orchards of the Surien or Suren Valley. Beginning in the north, about 25 kilometers north of Sevastopol Bay, at the very extremity of the 1941 fortress perimeter, is the Kacha River Valley. Between the Kacha and the Belbek River Valley is the Karatau or Black Mountain Plateau, a massif about 15 kilometers long and 6 kilometers wide running east from the Kacha Valley to a series of low hills that end at the Black Sea. The southern slopes of the Karatau form the northern rampart of the Belbek Valley, scene of heavy fighting. The Belbek Heights run approximately from Pirahovka to Lubimovka. Another series of hills runs along the southern edge of the valley and range in height from about 160 meters in the east to less than 100 meters along the coast, end quote. And that was the description of the city from The Defense of Sevastopol, 1941 to 1942, The Soviet Perspective, by Clayton Donnell. You can see some of this in uh, Map 2 on the website and in the show notes. So let's focus on the battle for Sevastopol itself. We're in late October. So the Germans managed to reach a town called Zhankoi. This is where those three crossings uh, into Crimea, so Perekop, Chanhara, and Hevenshensk, converge and then spread out again. This put the Germans on the road to the Crimean capital of Simferopol. By October 20th, the Germans were taking full advantage, pushing further south and spreading right across Crimea from east to west including Yevpatoria, the um, port uh, on the western side, and the Crimean capital, as I mentioned, of Simferopol, and to the farthest eastern point, the city of Kerch. On October 22nd, General Kuznetsov, who had been in charge of the Crimean uh, the 51st Army, was relieved of his command and replaced by Vice Admiral Gorday Ivanovich Levchenko of the Black Sea Fleet. So you can see things are getting really desperate when a, an army general is being replaced by a Navy Admiral. By the 23rd, the Luftflotte, or Air Force, had attacked the Soviet Red Air Force in Crimea and destroyed 33 aircraft over two days 
and losing only one of their own. Over the next week, the Soviets lost 140 aircraft. On the 24th, the coastal army units arrived from Odessa. So the Soviets had finally um, evacuated Odessa, uh, the major port in Ukraine further to the west of Crimea, and sent them on a series of ships across the Black Sea to Sevastopol. The, uh, the army, coastal army opened an artillery barrage against the Germans, but still the Germans repelled them. By the 28th, so we're at the end of October now, and uh, Operation Typhoon farther north is, is in full swing, the Germans are firmly entrenched in Crimea. The Soviet retreat is now a rout. The Germans move farther south, taking the entire peninsula except for um, Sevastopol and a small area around it down to Balaclava on the very southwestern corner of the peninsula. So now we get to the first assault on Sevastopol. The Soviets, and today the Russians, call it the, the first defense. So uh, on October 30th, 1941, Romanian troops came down south towards Sevastopol from the road leading to the Crimean capital of Simferopol. Heavy Soviet guns opened up, stopping the Romanians. The very next day, German reconnaissance units had not actually been warned by the Romanians for whatever reason, and they followed the same route and also came under heavy fire and had to stop. Meanwhile, Soviet forces were retreating from farther north in Crimea, so near the Isthmuses. They poured down south toward the last remaining stronghold, the city of Sevastopol, as I said, the home of the Black Sea Fleet now reinforced by the coastal army evacuated from Odessa, as well as the 7th Marine Brigade. This was a sort of a native to Sevastopol unit and had a full complement of heavy guns, mortars, and machine guns. Its job, its only job, was to defend the city. Sevastopol's uh, landward defenses included three concentric lines of defense, comprising some 82 bunkers with long-range and anti-tank guns and machine guns. The outer line was 15 to 17 kilometers from the city, with 29 artillery bunkers, 92 machine gun bunkers, 232 trenches, 48 dugouts, 8 kilometers of barbed wire for that much distance of wasn't that much barbed wire, really. Also, a one-mile anti-tank ditch and more than 9,000 anti-tank and anti-personnel mines. There were also fire curtains in the ravines. These were trenches or troughs filled with flammable liquid that could be ignited by flamethrowers. Next was the main line of defense, 8 to 12 kilometers from the city, 35 kilometers long in total, with 25 artillery bunkers. Eight at Balaclava, so that's to the south, the famous and notorious site of the Charge of the Light Brigade in 1854. This line also had a, another 57 machine gun emplacements, uh, 66 infantry trenches, three command posts, and 13 kilometers of barbed wire. Finally, the rear line, 
just three to six kilometers from the city. 19 kilometers long in total, another 28 artillery bunkers equipped with heavy naval guns, 45 millimeters to 100 millimeters in, uh, uh, in caliber, so these are big guns. There's also an anti-tank ditch and two lines of barbed wire, totaling 70 kilometers. In addition, there were five command posts, communications trenches, and dugouts. Pretty formidable. There were also the coastal batteries facing out to the sea to defend against naval or amphibious assault. This included another 82 naval guns, 100 machine gun pillboxes, and bunkers. There was also an armored train, so they could move to where it's needed, um, armed with three 76 millimeter guns. But according to the book, The Defense of Sevastopol, 1941 to 1942 by Clayton Donnell, quote, continuous defenses simply did not exist. This can be attributed to a constant change of plan and movement of forces from one theater to another and no single concept or agreement on a defensive approach. That is land defense versus uh, amphibious airborne assault defense. On 30th October 1941, none of the lines of defense were ready to firmly repel the attacker who was swiftly descending on Sevastopol, end quote. You can see this confusion play out during the last days of October, with conflicting orders given to the Soviet troops. For example, on October 29th, the 7th Marine Brigade, remember their job was to just to defend the city of Sevastopol, was sent north to a line parallel with Simferopol. When they got there, they got word that the enemy had already moved past them south. So they moved 40 kilometers west. By this time though, the Germans had passed them again and they were now behind enemy lines. When one unit saw the advancing Germans coming down the ro road, they demanded the Germans surrender, but they did not fire. The Germans replied with bullets and the Soviets withdrew. After more confusing orders and counter orders in which army units did not wish to obey Navy officers and vice versa, the joint commanders finally got their act together and decided they would not defend Sevastopol. Instead, they ordered evacuation. This included moving out all the anti-aircraft batteries, the ammunition, factory equipment, and hospitals, as well as military and civilian personnel. The coastal batteries were mined for destruction. Vice Admiral Philippe Oktyberski, commander of the Black Sea Fleet, ordered the city garrison to hold out for another five to seven days in order to complete the evacuation. Meanwhile, units of the Coastal Army, this is the army that had come from Odessa, encountered German forces east of the city, so they're moving closer. And the 7th Brigade of the Coastal Army lost more than two battalions in rear guard battles as they're retreating. More Marine reinforcements arrived at the end of October from uh, other units uh, along from the Danube area as well as Yalta, which is this town at the very southern tip of Crimea. Still, German and Romanian forces kept advancing towards Sevastopol. Eventually, Soviet forces reached positions around the city to oppose them. The German 54th Corps headed east toward Yalta at the southern tip, as I said, and the 72nd Infantry Division headed to Balaclava. 
thus encircling the city and the port of Sevastopol, the home of the Black Sea Fleet. A battalion of the Naval College, so these are, you know, the younger guys still in, you know, technically in training, moved to the railway station north of Bakchisarai. The Naval College unit set up on the hills over the road and the railway near the Kacha River. This sounds good. It sounds like, yeah, they are commanding the high ground, but their units were too far apart to be able to command the whole area. As a result, the Romanian units managed to capture a river crossing and hold it until the German 132nd Infantry Division could arrive. When they did, they opened fire on the defenders with 10 assault guns. And they were only opposed by three 76mm guns, a mortar battery, and an artillery battery. Still, the Soviet cadets refused to move, and so the Germans had to find another route. They eventually reached the bunkers, um, and I'll get to that. Uh, it's not really a good term for what, what we've got here. They reached bunkers at a town called Kasha, which is a funny term. It means porridge in Ukrainian. Anyway, uh, this is northeast of Sevastopol, but these bunkers were really, they weren't bunkers. They were just uh, large caliber naval guns set up on a circular concrete platform and protected by machine guns on uh, around them. So they're not, there's no roof on them. They're just this nice flat platform for bolting a gun to. It doesn't really defend the operators very well. It leaves them quite vulnerable. During the night of November 1st, the Germans moved down the Kacha Valley up to a plateau called Karatau, which they assaulted early in the morning of November 2nd. The Soviets held out all day until heavy artillery drove them out. Now we get to the actual first assault on the city itself. November 3rd, a Monday. Of course, it was a Monday. By the way, if you hear a strange rumbling from time to time, that's Ragnar the Magnificent, my, um, my big cat, who's decided he has to participate in this recording session. So as I said, it was a Monday morning, November 3rd, 1941. Lieutenant General Betov, commander by now of the 1st Army, as well as Major General Petrov of the Coastal Army, as well as their staff set up in the army base of the Balaclava Harbor southeast of Sevastopol itself. Meanwhile, the Red Army was conducting a fighting retreat. To the north, the cadets and two other battalions continued to hold out along the Kacha River Valley, only a few kilometers north of Sevastopol, until they had to pull back to the town of Tankova, then called, so you can find it today as Tankova, T-A-N-K-O-V-E. And at that time, in 1941, it was called Soreznes, about 15 kilometers southwest. Then they retreated farther to the Dvankoi strong point in the valley of the Belbek River. The Germans pounded the forces there, but the Soviet heavy guns were able to stop them. At one point in the evening, two German columns supported by armored vehicles attacked the main bunker at the Dvankoi strong point, killing most of the occupants and damaging their 37mm gun. But over the following night, the Soviets repaired the gun and resumed fighting. On November 4th, Vice Admiral Oktyabrsky assumed command of Sevastopol. He set up a naval uh, brigades to guard the approaches from the north. 
sent a heavy cruiser, two light cruisers, and seven destroyers to protect the port from the Luftwaffe. And at this point, the Red Air Force uh, assumed or took air superiority over Sevastopol. And this is because most of the Luftwaffe units were deployed to Moscow. The siege of Sevastopol was on. When the destroyer Badri shelled German positions along the coast on October 31st, the Luftwaffe attacked again, damaging the ship and wounding 50 of the crew. On November 2nd, Luftwaffe bombers hit the cruiser Voroshilov, putting it out of action for months. On November 6th, a Romanian submarine torpedoed and sank a Soviet cargo ship south of Yalta and then escaped back to its own port. This was another blow to the Soviets. So then on November 7th, the Germans sank a ship evacuating soldiers and civilians from Sevastopol. Out of the 5,000 passengers, only eight survived. On the 12th, so almost a week later, the Luftwaffe sank the light cruiser Chervona Ukraina, or Red Ukraine, and damaged two other destroyers. But after this, the Red Air Force's 39 serviceable aircraft in Sevastopol restored air superiority in the area. Manstein, so the German general and the German commander of this assault, wanted to end this stalemate. So he managed to get the German forces within four kilometers of uh, Sevastopol Bay or Severnaya Bay. The division continued toward Balaclava, but a Red Army uh, counterattack, uh, aided by naval shelling, halted this attack. Manstein called off the offensive on November 21st, having lost another 2,000 men. In December, Manstein tried a different approach. At this point, he realized he was the only German commander on the Eastern Front with an offensive mission. Other offensive operations had been suspended in December 1941 as so-called General Winter set in. Still, Manstein didn't give up, but it took him until December 17th, so two weeks to get organized. The Soviets didn't just lie around. They brought in more reinforcements, another 11,000 soldiers from the 388th Rifle Division into Sevastopol. They lay more minefields and barbed wire. They strengthened other defenses, and they managed to hold the coast. So by December 17th, more than 7,000 German soldiers in the 11th Army were sick. The Army was also short of artillery and uh, ammunition and heavy artillery pieces itself. Mansin had to leave the weak 42nd Corps with the 46th Infantry Division and the 2nd Romanian Brigades to protect his rear that stretched from Yalta to Kerch, some 250 kilometers of coastline. Still, at 6.10 a.m. on December 17th, the German 22nd Infantry Division attacked the Belbeck River, pushing westward toward the coast. Meanwhile, two other divisions attacked to tie down Soviet defenders in the center. After five days, the 22nd Infantry Division managed to outflank the Soviet Naval Brigade, which withdrew into the city in the center of the city of Sevastopol. In the south, the German 30th Corps failed to break through the defensive lines. 
Soviet 79th Naval Brigade and the 345th Rifle Division arrived by sea to reinforce the Soviet defenders around the Balaclava area. Then came the turning point for this phase, for this operation that is, not for the war, not by any stretch. Between December 26th and 30th, the Soviets launched an amphibious assault on the Kerch Peninsula, that tongue of land, that eastern extremity of Crimea that reaches out toward the Taman Peninsula on the other side in Russia proper. There was no bridge there. Russia did not manage to build a bridge across the narrow Kerch Strait until 2018. And while there may be the remnants of a bridge there today, I don't think there will be one by the end of this year if the Ukrainians continue to have their way. But again, I digress. Back to 1941. The attack gained the Soviets a bridgehead on the Kerch Peninsula. The Germans counterattacked and managed to contain the bridgehead and interdict supplies with aerial bombarding. Still, this tied down German forces for five months and cost them over 24,000 casualties. At a loss on the Soviet side of 352,000 dead and wounded. Five months. That's how much longer the siege of Sevastopol would last until the second summer of the war in the East. That holding out is what earned Sevastopol the title Hero City of the Soviet Union. And that is where we'll end this episode. We'll return to Sevastopol in a future episode to cover the end of the siege. For now, thanks for listening. Please come back in two weeks, two Sundays if you're up late, or first thing Monday morning, December 18th, for another special episode. I'll be joined by none other than Sebastian Major from Our Fake History. It's one of my favorite podcasts and one that anyone at all interested in history should listen to. Between now and then, why not check out Our Fake History on your preferred podcasting app. That's Our Fake History. So for now, thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, see the maps on photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca, and click on the podcast button in the banner. If you like this episode, consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. These ratings, even if it's not a a review, really help spread the word and alert others who are interested in history. I also want to thank all of those who have supported the podcast through Patreon or the Podbean app. Your financial support goes to better audio equipment, research, and support for charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. Or if you have a comment or something to add or a question, send it along. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook 
Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Till next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.